Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, you're listening to episode 127, and my guest is Mario Fraioli. Mario is a runner, a coach, a writer, and a podcaster. Over the years, he has coached athletes ranging from first finish lines, personal bests, and Boston Marathon qualifying times to national championship titles, Olympic trial appearances, international podiums, world championship teams, national records, and even the Olympic Games. Mario was also the senior editor at Competitor Magazine from 2010 to 2016, where many of you might recognize his name from. He now shares his thoughts on running and other topics in his weekly newsletter called The Morning Shakeout. And he somewhat recently started the podcast, The Morning Shakeout, which you should totally check out and head over to his website, mariofraoli.com, to subscribe to the newsletter. Links to that will be in the show notes at lindsayhine.com. In this episode, Mario and I talk a lot about his career and what that looked like working for Competitor and the business of The Morning Shakeout, the podcast, and just a little behind-the-scenes podcast talk in this episode. He also gives us some fun predictions on races and, oh, we do a athlete thing where I give him my situation and he tells me how he would coach me, which was actually really fun. You guys can follow Mario on Instagram and Twitter at Mario Fraioli. M-A-R-I-O-F-R-A-I-O-L-I. You guys can follow me on Instagram, lindsayhine626, on Twitter, at lindsayhine, and make sure you join our Facebook group where we talk about past and upcoming episodes of the podcast, also races and training, book club, anything else that comes up. It's a great place to hang out over there. If you're loving the show, I would appreciate it so much if you would leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, whatever app you listen. It takes about two minutes and it's super helpful in potential new listeners finding the show. If you're a regular listener, you're probably sick of hearing me ask that, right? I appreciate each and every one of you who've already done so. If you're looking for more content from me, I also have a Patreon page where I release bonus episodes monthly. That's patreon.com slash It's a simple way to support the show and my work behind it. And I've started a new thing where I leave guests on the line for an extra 10 minutes and ask them questions. And those questions will be released for Patreon listeners over there. So that's patreon.com slash Lindsay Hine. All right, guys, I won't keep you waiting any longer. Enjoy my conversation with Mario Fraioli. Welcome to the show, Mario. How are you? I'm great, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Well, this is super fun. And I think that most of my listeners probably know you from when you were the editor at Competitor Magazine. Would you say that's fair? A lot of people know you from that. Yeah, that's fair. I was at Competitor for six years from 2010 to 2016 and wrote a lot of articles and appeared in a lot of videos and at a lot of events. So that's a, I think that's a pretty fair, fair statement. Yeah. And I, we talked about this in the email. I think that this is when I came to know who you were because I, when I came out to San Diego for the women's running cover shoot, you, I think we must have met in the offices or something when I was there with Jesse and Caitlin. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we were pretty close with the women's running team and we we're all in the same vicinity in the office. So when, when people came in, if they were showing somewhere around, we usually got an introduction and kind of had an idea what was going on. So I think I think that is correct. You were like, who's the non-famous, non-elite runner that you're putting on the cover of your magazine this month? 
Oh, no, not <laughs> not at all. I mean, we look, we didn't even at competitor. Uh, we didn't have a, an elite or a famous person on the cover every month. I mean, most months we had someone who was fairly recognizable, but we tried to spread it around as best as best we could. And I think it's important to do that. Oh, totally. Because who's who's reading your magazine? Mostly everyday runners, right? Exactly. So you are kind of like a self-proclaimed running dork. So tell us how you got to that point in your life. Like, <laughs> why are you so invested in the sport? Uh, I mean, that is that is absolutely true. Um, you can just ask my wife and she would certainly reaffirm that. I, I actually think my wife's uh, Instagram profile, she has married to a run nerd. Um, That's where I got the description. Yeah. I, <laughs> I stalked so, her out. Yeah. So that is, uh, that is totally true. Um, you know, it started, the seeds were planted in high school, um, back in the mid to late 1990s and they've been growing ever since and, and intensifying ever since, if I'm being honest. Um, my intro to the sport wasn't necessarily because, um, I wanted to run. I, I wanted to keep in shape for basketball. Uh, so I started running cross country and that's sort of how I got into things. And, slowly started to get hooked and realized that I was a much better runner than I was a basketball player. And, uh, it just snowballed from there. So when did you start writing? Because your writing kind of like takes the form of the sport as well, because you write about running. Yeah. So I've always loved writing. Um, and going way, way back to like second grade, and I have very vivid memories of this. We had a project in class where we, like, quote unquote, published our own book. And so we would write, you know, we wrote a story on these eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper and folded them in half so that it had a, um, you know, so that it was like a book form. So that it had like a binding and then we made a cover on like construction paper and then we got it laminated and we'd put it in the library. And that was a huge thrill for me. Like, I remember I wrote this book called Adventures of Batman. And... I, you know, made up this, <laughs> made up this story, um, and just, and just love the entire process of it. And, and I remember that very vividly. Um, and just sort of like concurrent with that, I remember a teacher writing on my report card or progress report or something at the time to my parents. Um, Mario asks a lot of questions, <laughs> uh, tell him, I hope he never stops or something, something along those lines. So, I mean, I think going way, way back, that's sort of where it started. And then just as I went through school and high school and college, I've never liked taking tests, but I've always liked answering open-ended questions or long form questions. Um, the essays on exams were always my favorite. And then even in college, uh, and I'm sure we can get into this, but I majored in philosophy. And one of the reasons that I majored in philosophy was because there weren't many exams. They were all papers. And I'd much rather write a paper than write an exam. Um, so it started very, very early on. But I've just always I've just always liked writing. It's just always come. I don't say it comes naturally to me. I still I still struggle with it quite a bit. Um, and a lot of that self-imposed. But I just I, I love doing it. For me, it's probably my best form of expression. It's how I get my ideas across the clearest, I believe. And it's really how I think through a lot of things. Um, and it's just, again, another one of those things that has just been building momentum over the years. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you what you majored in. So you majored in philosophy. Yeah, I majored in philosophy and I had a minor in psychology. Uh, and I should 
asterisk that by saying I probably I changed my major probably eight to ten times um, <laughs> because all you had to do was go go down to the registrar's office and, and submit a form and they would you know change whatever was your you know whatever your major was and I went back and forth between a lot of things like Spanish and education and then major in psychology minor in psychology major in philosophy minor in philosophy I, like I, I went a million different routes I had no idea what I wanted to do um, but I ended up I ended up graduating with a degree in uh, philosophy and minor in psychology. You know, I oftentimes think I should write more. I don't write at all, really. But um, just with my podcast and everything, I think about that because I know that it's just like one more indirect way to possibly drive people to my podcast. You know, if I write an article right. that resonates with people, how powerful do you think that is for someone like me? To, to write. Just write more? Yeah, just to like, you know, write about life or the sport uh you know like I you know I for instance here's a really good good example I went to Boston this year with my friends mm -hmm. my husband ran so I was cheering him on and you know like there was just something in me that was like I should write like a little write-up about my experience there and you know if someone's googling you know I'm talking about the business side of things here a little bit but like if someone's googling and they find my story and then through my story they find my podcast like that's a right. win for me Right. Yeah. I mean, it just, it gives you more, I hate the word content, but it gives you more content. So you obviously have a great podcast and you've published how many episodes now? Like hundred over, I know well over a hundred, like 125 or something like that. Yeah. 125 will be tomorrow. 125 will be tomorrow. So, I mean, that's a, that's a great body of work right there. And I think being able to, you know, complement that with, whether it's a blog post or, I mean, look, even, even an Instagram caption, that's writing, right? I yeah. mean, it's, it doesn't have to be this big long form article every time or, or a book. Um, but I do think like those types of things can complement the other work that you're doing and drive people toward it and just further your own, you know, your own message. Um, and it just really connects all of those things. Yeah. You know, when you bring up Instagram and I have kind of like, that's kind of part of the reason I stopped writing anything on my blog at all because, um, I'm just like, well, I can write like four paragraphs on an Instagram post yeah. and there it is right there, you know? Yeah. There is a limit on the number of characters you can use, but it's, it's pretty generous. Uh, you can, you could put a fairly robust post in there and it, it's interesting because, um, I mean, Instagram is obviously the hottest social platform right now, or at least I would argue that it is. And there are a lot of folks who kind of grew up in the blogosphere, fear, got their start there or created an online presence in that space. And with the rise of Instagram, they've totally gotten away from that. Um, and it's not to mean that like blogs and websites aren't important anymore, but a lot of those folks are putting their energy into Instagram because it is the place where everyone's gathering right now or most people are. I totally agree with that for sure. So tell me about working for a competitor and, and getting that position as a senior editor. You were there from 2010 to 2016. How did you get there in your career? I mean, because that seems like a pretty exciting job to land. That was my dream job. Yeah. Um, I and I started as a web editor in 2010 and got promoted to senior editor sometime in, I don't know if it was late 2011 or 2012, somewhere in that, in that range when Brian Metzler came on board as the editor in chief and I worked right under him as his number two. Um, but I, you know, so kind of going back a year or two, um, I had 
Actually, let's go back further than that. So I started, I graduated college in 2004 and I moved out to Eugene, Oregon to pursue running. And I moved out there not knowing anyone, not having a job, not having any money. Uh, just, I was pretty naive, like 20, you know, 22 year old at the time. Um, long story short, I lasted about two months in Eugene, Oregon, went broke, got homesick, uh, ended up moving back home and I needed to get a job. Uh, because I needed to start paying back my college loans. And the, you know, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And the first job that I could get that sounded really interesting to me was working at the local newspaper. And I took a job as a call taker for 16 hours a week. Uh, it was four or four hour shifts. And what I did was I'd go in at five o'clock and I'd work till nine and I'd answer the phone uh, and I'd answer the phone from high school. I worked in the sports department. So I'd answer the phone from high school and college coaches. I would take the stats from their game that day. I would create the box scores that went in the back of the newspaper. But I'd also get to write up like a little three sentence um, summary of the game and just using whatever information that they gave me. Uh, so I did that. And I loved it. I loved it. It was one of the best jobs I've, I've ever had. And um, I really liked getting this limited amount of information and kind of crafting a story with it. So, you know, I did that for a while. Uh, I supplemented that with a, another job at the newspaper. I worked in the morning in telemarketing, um, actually like selling the newspaper from like 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. And then I would go in from five to nine, four nights a week. Um, but I really loved the writing part of it and I wanted to do more. And um, this newspaper that I worked at, the Worcester Telegram Gazette, at the time, uh, it was the second biggest newspaper in Massachusetts behind the Mos uh, Boston Globe. Uh, we actually had a running column that ran every Sunday in the newspaper. Uh, and there was a gentleman who was a freelancer. He wasn't on staff, but who wrote the column every week. And I think they paid him maybe 75 bucks or 100 bucks or something. Uh, and he was out on vacation um, for a stretch. And they needed someone to fill in and write the column for him. And they're like, Mario, do you want to do it? You, you know, you love running. You've been running for a long time. Like you write for us. You know, you're more than capable of doing it. And I was like, yeah, I'd love the opportunity. Um, so I started, I started writing this running column uh, for the newspaper. And I did like two of them. And the sports editor liked it a lot more than what we were getting from the <laughs> freelancer. Uh, and long story short, I, I ended up getting the, the running column in addition to my my other duties. And um, I loved it. It was it was great to be able to have that. I loved talking to people and telling, you know, telling local stories and and all of that. Um, and, you know, fast forward a, a couple of years, I ended up. Uh, applying for and getting a job at the newspaper as a copy editor. So I got to leave telemarketing and copy editing. It paid a lot better. Uh, and it wasn't full time, but it was like 30 hours a week. So it was like almost full time. So I did that and I was writing the running column. And, you know, I had other opportunities to cover like some high school games and occasionally a race here and there. Um, I got to cover the Boston Marathon a couple times. And I just I was like, this this is what I want to do. Like I I love this, um, but I was still in my mid twenties and no idea how I could further it. And um, I ended up getting a part-time job at a running store while I was still working at the newspaper. I was working just like crazy, crazy hours um, and trying to, you know, just try and eventually it just got to be too much. And I tried to find a situation that was more sustainable. And the thing is that at a newspaper, you really don't, you know, you don't get promoted unless someone quits dies, gets fired or, 
somehow loses their job. Um, they just like people don't leave that <laughs> profession. So I felt, you know, I felt kind of stuck. I'm like, this is probably about as far as I can go here at the newspaper until something else opens up. And I really didn't know how to get into like the freelance world or, or any of that kind of stuff at the time. Um, and I, and I didn't want to work 70 hours a week anymore. So, um, I ended up getting a full-time job at the running store as the, as the store manager. So I left the newspaper completely. Uh, and this was like 2006 or so. Um, so I was working full-time at the running store. I was still writing the running column. I got to keep that, which was cool. Uh, but that was about the extent of, you know, my writing at the time. And I was managing the store and I was training hard and I was writing this running column. And I started doing a little bit of freelancing for a couple different outlets. Like, uh, New England runner. And, um, there was a website at the time called mensracing.com, which the New York road runners owned. And they also had fastwomen.com. And I got to do interviews. I started doing interviews with, um, a lot of top athletes at the time. Like I remember it was a huge thrill for me. I was, I was interviewing like Meb Kaflesky and Ellen Culpepper and, uh, Abdi Abdurrahman. And I was like, I was just like a kid in a candy store. Um, but it was just like this, you know, this little, thing that I did on the side in addition to managing the running store. But that was what I loved. I loved interviewing people. I loved writing, uh, writing about running. And I was like, how, you know, how, how could I make a career of this? How do I get like on staff at the time? I was like, I want to work for running times. Uh, I want to be like on their, on their staff or at runner's world. I wanted to get into the industry. I had no idea how to do that. Um, so around like 2009, uh, summer of 2009, I was like, you know what? I, I just have to do it. Uh, I've got to figure out a way to do it. And I talked to my boss at the running store who is uh, is one of my best friends still today. He was in my wedding. And I was like, Rich, I, you know, I don't, I don't really know how to tell you this, but um, I don't want to work full time at the store anymore as the manager. I would, you know, if I could, I'd love to cut back and work like three days a week, maybe like 24, 25 hours so that I can devote the rest of my working time to pitching stories and trying to figure out how I can get on staff at a running publication. Uh, and that's what I did. And, and he, you know, I had his blessing. He's like, I was, he's like, I've been waiting for this day for the last like <laughs> three and a half years because I knew that's what you really wanted to do. Um, so it was awesome to, to have that opportunity. And I actually reached out to Scott Douglas, who, uh, is a longtime running writer and freelancer, did a lot for running times, uh, and runner's world. And I'd read a lot of his stuff and I knew he lived in, uh, I knew he lived in Maine, which was a few hours from me. And he was an editor on some of these, um, you know, some of these interviews I had been doing, um, previously. And I was like, Scott, could I, uh, could I come up to Maine for a day and, maybe go for a run and just pick your brain about how I can make a living as a running writer. <laughs> uh, and he was really generous with his time and said, yeah, if you want to come up, you're more than welcome to. And, and I did, I went up there one day, we went for a run, we had breakfast afterward and I just sat there and picked his brain for the rest of the day. And he's like, you know, he's like, you just have to, he's like, you just have to pitch, pitch, pitch. And when you think you've pitched too much, just pitch some more. Like you just have to pitch stories. Um, and that was really valuable advice, as simple as it sounds. And that's what I did. I just started pitching stories to editors of all these different magazines and and websites. And I got, you know, I got some stories with Running Times, which was great um, and a good opportunity for me. And I was doing some stuff for, again, New England Runner. And I also did uh, Competitor was just starting, actually, at the time. Like Competitor Magazine's been around for a long time, but Competitor.com as a as a running website was just getting off the ground. Uh, and it was really, I mean, in its infancy, it was months old. I don't even know if they had 
put anything out yet or started promoting it. Um, but I, I got that intel from Scott. He's like, you know, competitors starting this thing and they're probably gonna be looking for writers. You should reach out to them. It'd be good to get your foot in the door. And I was like, oh, that sounds good. So I, I did that and um, I started, Matt Fitzgerald was working there and uh, I got in touch with him and I got some work right away, which was great. And I just started writing like one article a week for competitor. And I was writing a column called on the run for triathlete, which interestingly enough, that was my first intro to Brian Metzler. Um, so Brian and I co-wrote this column. I would write it one month. He'd write it the next month. I'd write it one month. He'd write it the next month. Um, so all this was happening in like late 2009 and it was great. Um, it was working out really well. I was working part-time at the running store. I, you know, I was writing for a bunch of different publications and I was coaching a few people at the time and I was making it work. I was like, this is great. This is exactly what I want to be doing. And hopefully it leads to a couple of years from now, it leads to an opportunity to get on staff at a running magazine somewhere. And I still had no idea how I would make that <laughs> next step and actually like get on the payroll somewhere uh, as an employee and not just a contributor. But lo and behold, um, the web editor at competitor just a few months later, who I had, um, been submitting work to was like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be leaving my job to get back into the running shoe industry. Uh, and they're going to be looking for a new web editor. And I know my boss would appreciate it if I could give him some recommendations of people who might be interested so they don't have to open up this, you know, crazy wide search and do the process all over again. And it's probably helpful that, you know, you've already written a lot of stuff from us. You're familiar with competitor, like you write for triathlete, which competitor group owned at the time. So you're kind of like, you've got a foot in the door. And I was like, yeah, I'd absolutely be interested. hundred percent. Give him my name. Uh, and he's like, you probably have to move to San Diego for this job. Uh, and I was like, I don't care, whatever, <laughs> like, give, him, give him my name. Happy to talk to him. Uh, like this is the opportunity I'd, I'd been looking for and I didn't think I would get for, you know, for a long time. And, um, that's sort of how that conversation started. And, um, I went out to San Diego for, you know, for an interview and went through a few rounds of interviews and, and actually, so April, fast forward a little bit to April, 2010, I hadn't, I'd already interviewed. I hadn't been hired yet. I had to, I had one more interview in Boston at the marathon that weekend. Um, and I was working for competitor that weekend at the marathon in, in 2010, April, they had, um, you know, essentially rented me out for the weekend. Like I would work for them. I worked for them from Thursday till Tuesday and wrote, I don't know, 10 stories or whatever it was. And I ended up interviewing in Boston with, uh, Andy Hersom, who was the executive vice president of media at the time, because he wasn't in San Diego when I went out for my interview. And I knew that was like, that was it. I was like, I got to make a good impression here. And uh, a week or so later, um, I got offered the job. And within five weeks after that, I was, you know, sold my house and packed up my belongings and moved out to San Diego to work for a competitor. So that's a long winded story. But that's, uh, that's sort of how I how I got there. That's where you la how you landed in San Diego. I bet you're not mad about living in San Diego. Uh, no, it was a nice. <laughs> I mean, I, I look. I love Massachusetts. I spent first 28 years of my life there. I I moved actually the day after my 28th birthday, um, and my family's still there, and a lot of my closest friends are still there, and I still feel really proud to be from Massachusetts. But uh, California was not a bad transition um, from. Yeah you know, from, uh, the East coast. So no complaints. And actually, 
you know, we live, my wife and I live in the Bay Area now. So we've been here since 2014, but I was in San Diego for, you know, a good three and a half years and worked the last, uh, last couple of years of my tenure at competitor remotely. You talked about like pitching your stories over and over again. So, you know, I hear people get discouraged when they're pitching, pitching, and they, how many no's do you get for how many yeses? You know what I mean? How did you deal with the rejection when you did get rejection? Man, it's the most discouraging thing in the world. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it. Um, I got rejected a lot more than I got my pitches accepted. Um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, you kind of, you develop a thick skin pretty quickly or you have to, or you're just not going to last very long as a, especially as a freelance writer. Um, you know, you learn how to deal, you learn how to deal with rejection and maybe, you know, take that same story idea and repackage it for another editor at a different publication, or just if it's a story you really want to tell, find a way to get it out in the world. But early on, as a as a freelancer, just trying to get work, you you say, I mean, you pitch things, yeah, and you learn to deal with rejection, but you also open yourself to taking on assignments. At least that's what I did, and I would I would write, I would take whatever assignments I could get early on, just to show the editors that I was working with that. I wanted to do work for them, that I could do good work, that I could meet deadlines, that I was, you know, serious about being a frequent contributor to, contributor to their publication. And I found when I did that, it gave me some leverage in terms of when I did pitch stories uh, because they were familiar with my work and they knew that I could do a good job. And even if it was a crazy harebrained idea, if they were, you know, if they were comfortable enough with me and, and how I operated that they'd give me a chance on it. Um, so I think it's, you know, I think that part of it's important as well. But yeah, you, you've got to develop a thick skin and, and learn to take rejection well, because you're going to get rejected a lot more times than you're going to get your your pitch accepted. Yeah. Um. So I'm just thinking this through as we're talking. I'm interviewing someone who interviews people for a living, for <laughs> at least a part of your living, or le- that's what you did mm-hmm. for a long time and you still do on your podcast, The Morning Shakeout Now. You know, when I started this podcast, I had never interviewed anybody. I didn't know what I was doing. I just thought, I like to have conversations and learn about people's lives, and I'm just going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've learned a lot, you know, in the past two years. I've learned a lot about how to research in an interview, um, how to guide a conversation, and just let the conversation flow, you know. For instance, I wasn't going to ask you this question, but now my wheels are turning. <laughs> Go for uh, it. How do you prepare for interviews and how have you grown um, over the years in the craft? That's a great question. I, so I let curiosity be my guide. It always has been and it has to start there. I mean, why, you know, if I'm not curious about someone or what they're doing um, or what they're into, you know, I probably don't want to talk to them anyway. (laughs) Um, So I've, it's always started with just a real genuine curiosity. Uh, and to go back to the first thing that we talked about, like just the dorkiness. I mean, (laughs) you know, I've been involved in, in running and following the sport now since high school. So that's, you know, we're talking 21 years at this point, uh, that I've been, that I've been really following it. So a lot of my, I hate calling it research, but it really is research. It's been just ongoing for the last 20, 21 years. I mean, I'm just so immersed in it and paying attention to what's going on in the sport and what people are doing and, um, you know, and all of that, that it's not, I mean, yes, before I, I sit down to talk to a specific person, I will take a couple hours to kind of go through 
whatever I can find in terms of like the race results, other interviews that they've done, mm-hmm. articles that have been written about them, you know, to make sure that I'm not, uh, you know, that I'm not beating a dead horse. Um, but a lot of it is like, I'm talking to people that, you know, I have a genuine curiosity in and, um, it starts from there. And, and because of that, I've, I've got a, you know, a baseline level of, of knowledge that I'm working from and questions that I, you know, that I want to ask. And then, you know, as the, the interview itself gets closer, um, you know, I'll really hone in on, okay, what, you know, what do I want to make sure that I hit here? Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I really look at them as conversations more than interviews. So I don't have like a set list of questions where I'm like, I'm going to ask these 10 questions come hell or high water. It's like, I have talking points and I have things that I want to hit on and, you know, I'll start somewhere. And then similar to you, I just, I see where the conversation goes and I just sort of like let it flow. And, and a lot of times I'll end up getting, you know, that'll end up really satisfying my curiosity because it'll go in places that I never imagined, you know, that, it, you know, that it would. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's sort of how I, how I've always approached it. Yeah. And on this, uh, platform specifically, like with podcasting, I have found it helpful. Like I watch video. I always make sure I watch if I can find one, at least one or two videos of someone just so I can get a feel of their personality, Right. you know, cause some people just aren't extroverted or extrovert might not be the right word, but they're just not outgoing and they don't, and you really have to kind of like feed the conversation more. And so to be prepared for that is so important. Yeah, I think you have to make the person that you're talking to comfortable and and fairly relaxed. And I, I mean, thinking of the podcast. So I mean, I just I started my podcast about six months ago. It was December of of 2017. I mean, I've been interviewing people for years. But when I would interview people uh, and I would record them, it was never. I'm like, okay, no one's ever going to hear this except <laughs> me. I'm going to transcribe it. Um, I'm going to use like quotes for the story that I'm working on, or even. I mean, I've done a lot of interviews, and I, I love these kind of interviews where I'll transcribe the conversation into text and put photos in it. And I just, I like that presentation. I was doing that before I even started the podcast. But for me, like a major change was, and, and it still stresses me out to some degree. It's like people are going to be listening to this. Don't mm-hmm. screw it up. Don't watch your ums and your ahs and your rambling questions and your, you know, all of, all of that sort of stuff. So that's been, you know, that's been really, really interesting. And I'll listen back to a lot of my own. I mean, I cringe when I hear myself <laughs> speak and I, I hate doing it and it's still not comfortable, but I, I've got to learn like, okay, where can I improve and, you know, and do better. And then, you know, with the podcast itself, like, you know, trying to have like, that's why I don't really have much of an intro on mine because the most uncomfortable thing in the world for me to do is to be in an empty room with just a microphone and be talking to no one. Um, so it's just like that part of it's, uh, different. And, you know, I, I'm certainly learning and taking practice from, but like the conversations themselves, it's like, yeah, you just want to make the person that you're talking to comfortable, even if it's over the phone or, you know, over Skype. And certainly if you're, you know, if you're in person. Um, but I've always just, I've just always enjoyed like talking to people and kind of asking questions and, uh, back to, you know, second grade. It's just like, I've just been asking questions for a long time. I think that's just a, I'm just a naturally curious person. I've always let that guide me. Do you edit your own show? I don't edit my own show. I tried to on the first show (laughs) and I just, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm fairly tech savvy. Um, but I just started getting really frustrated with yes. learning how to how to do it. Um, and I I mean, I do a lot of things and it just it wasn't worth my. Well, it's important. I mean, I, I want to have a very highly like well-produced show and have high audio quality and and all of that. And uh, I ended up just throwing my hands up in the air and hiring 
uh, hiring an audio engineer to help me with the editing and the sound and to take care of those things. I found it was a lot easier for me to go through and say, cut this, 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 and this, um, or like, you know, fix this little, uh, gaff right here than trying to figure it out myself because I know me and I would just sit there and, and like just overthink it and spend way too much time on it and get really frustrated. And it's just been that part of it for me is just to be able to send that off and get it back nicely packaged, uh, and ready to go is, has, I don't know. I think added some years to my life. You're a smart man. I if well in your what are you like 19 episodes in? Yeah, 19 episodes in and number yeah, I'm actually recording number 20 this afternoon. So Yeah. Um, so yeah, still still early on, but um from from the first episode. I tried. I I really did put like an effort in. I I was like fiddling around with it for 2 or 3 hours and I was like Nope. I'm like, I'm not dealing with this anymore. And, uh, I ended up finding a, a great audio engineer and I've been working with him on every, every episode since. And it's money well spent. Well, I agree. And I, I mean, I can't tell you how many tears and late nights I've had over this whole thing. And I don't think that my audio became really great or good until like a hundred episodes in. So there's something to be said for biting the bullet and doing it from the start because man, sometimes I think I hope nobody starts at like episode 10 of my show <laughs> because there's some, a lot of problems. I'm, and I always tell people when they check out somebody else's podcast, I'm like, don't ever start at the beginning, start with their new episodes, you know, cause they've learned so much. But it's, you know, I think it's also helpful. And again, I, again, I cringe when I listen to my own voice and when I'm screwing things up, but it can be really helpful if you can step outside yourself and really look, try to look at it as objectively as possible and say, okay, what can I do? You know, what can I do better? Where can I improve? Because that's what helps make the newer ones even better. I mean, I've, you know, I've done that with my own show. I've done that with a lot of, um, I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts. So a lot of my favorite ones, I've gone back like way back, uh, to like, you know, I love Rich Roll and he's yep. done, God, I don't know how hundreds of episodes at this point. And it took me, I mean, it took me five minutes just to scroll to the bottom of the feed uh -huh. to find the first couple episodes. And I'm like, this is a guy who is a total pro. The quality of his show is, you know, as good as anyone else's in the, in the podcast world. Um, what were his first couple like? And you listen to him and you're like, oh, that's not really all that impressive. Really? <laughs> um, but it's, I haven't gone back on his. But it's improved like so much and it's like, okay, well, that's just like, you know, no one, I shouldn't say no one, but very few people like knock it out of the park yeah. from the, from the very beginning. And, and even with my own, like it's gotten better, but I'm like, it still has a ways to go. So that's interesting that you do that. Yeah. I mean, I've listened to several of Ritual's podcasts and, um, he is so deep in that I've never thought about going back to the very beginning and be like, how has he evolved as a host? Because obviously he has in this time. That is a really smart thing to do. Yeah. And I am with you. I cringe. Like if I were to listen to any, probably my first 50, I'd say I would cringe. Um, okay. So moving on from podcasting, because I'm a big yeah. podcast dork, but we, I'm sure we could go on for we hours, could. but yeah let's, yeah, let's carry on. My listeners only care so much about the behind the scenes. That's for sure. All right, I want to jump in real quick, you guys, and thank our sponsor for this episode, which is Four Sigmatic. They make drinking mushrooms, yes, drinking mushrooms, delicious and easy to do with their wide variety of superfood and super good for you beverages. Some of my favorites include the Chaga Elixir, the Lion's Mane Elixir, and I really love the Mushroom Mocha Mix. Their mushroom coffees are organically grown and third-party quality Tested. They have multiple options, including instant ground coffee and mushroom pods. I've been drinking this product for a while. I've been recommending it for a while on this show now. And if you haven't tried it yet, 
I highly recommend you heading over to foursigmatic.com slash another and use the promo code another for 15% off your order. Try it out and let me know what you think. And when you guys support a sponsor of this podcast, you are directly supporting the podcast. So I thank you so much for that. And thank you for Sigmatic for supporting the show. All right, you guys, let's enjoy the rest of my conversation with Mario. So you still run competitively, though. You just ran Boston and 237 is pretty fast for what happened in Boston this year. Yeah, I was really happy with that. It was a it was a really good race for me. Um you know, time was out the window. I mean, I, I knew days going into it, like the time's not really going to matter on this day. It's going to be about <laughs> survival given the forecast. And for me, I much prefer cold, windy, rainy adversity than like hot, dry, you know, the other side of it, like what it was the year before. I mean, to, you know, uh, 2017, it was 75 degrees and warm and I totally wilted. So for me, it was like, you know, I think Yuki Kawuchi said after the race, he's like, for me, they were the perfect conditions. And I would have to agree with that for myself. Like it just, you know, I ended up having, I think a good race relative to the people that I normally compete against because the conditions were more favorable for me on that day. So, um, yeah, it was a good, uh, it was a good day for me. Yeah. That's, it's been cool to watch like who, what kind of people and what kind of runner, thrived in the conditions compared to their competitors for sure um so i have and i've beat a dead horse with the boston marathon i've talked about it so much but i also want to talk to you about you're running cim this year right i've read your newsletter on tuesday so i know that i am running cim this year december whatever that first weekend in december is uh i will be running cim for the second time i did it in 2015 and i'm excited to go back it's only about two hours from where i live here in the Bay Area, so it's a nice weekend trip. Okay, so what are your goals for CIM? Candidly, I'd like to run under 230, uh, okay. which I've done before. I did that in 2007, but I haven't done it since uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, and I've come close a couple times, but I, for me to do that, uh, and it's totally attainable, I just need to buckle down and you know, get a good day like anyone else does and, you know, in the marathon and, you know, for whatever reason, I'm really excited to pursue that goal this year. And that hasn't been the case necessarily in the past few years. So I'm going to ride that momentum while, you know, while I've got it. And, uh, I don't know how many more, you know, I don't know how much longer I want to compete necessarily. And I'm, look, I'm not a pro or anything like that. I'm not right. going to quote unquote retire, but I mean, I've been, you know, I've been training hard and racing hard for 20 to 21 years and it's like physically taxing and it's emotionally exhausting. And I love that part of it as well. Um, but the realistic side of me is like, I don't know how much longer, uh, I'll want to do that. And right now my excitement's high and I'm, I'm pretty motivated to, you know, push myself and go after that. And, you know, I'm not getting any younger either. So I'd love to give myself a shot. And that's, you know, that's the goal. It's a, it's a big goal. Um, it'll take a lot of work, but it's also, you know, it's not, it's not out of this world crazy for me. Are you 36? I'm 36 now. Yeah. Yeah. So are you thinking once you hit the age where you can't run marathons any faster because you're, you know, older, <laughs> yeah. does that, does that not excite you to hit like, Oh, this is my PR for my master's times. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a couple things. I mean, I, as I said, I've been doing it for 20 
years now, which is, I mean, that's a long time. And, and some people have been able to, I mean, guess train and race at a high level for 40 or more years. I mean, look at, you know, Joan Benoit Samuelson. Um, she's still going at like 60 something years old and running under three hours. I don't know if that's me. Um, and I look, I coach a number of athletes too, who are, who are in their early to mid forties, um, who are running PRs in the marathon. And, um, and still I think have another PR or two in them. And I mean, their background's different, their history's different, but their motivations are different as, as well. You know, they weren't as into the sport maybe when they were younger. So they still have this, you know, fresher legs, but also just this fresher energy to, you know, to do it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think I, I think I can still get faster at the marathon distance for the next few years, but at some point it does start going the other way. Um, and you know, I don't know if that's going to be next year or five years or six years for me. I mean, I don't think anyone really knows that, but I know right now I've, I've got a chance to, you know, to still set a personal best in the marathon. And, uh, I would love to, I would love to give myself a shot to do that this year. All right. So you've been coaching runners for a long time. And after you left competitor, you kind of expanded your business. And I want to hear what is your coaching philosophy? So I've been, I've been coaching runners to varying degrees since I graduated from college in 2004. So 14 plus years now. And now today in 2018, it's, uh, I mean, it's how I spend, I'd say probably 60 to 70% of my my working time. And I do coach a very wide range of, of athletes from Olympic trials, qualifiers, and some top ultra runners to, uh, Boston qualifiers. I don't coach newbies necessarily, but competitive age groupers who you would never hear of, um, but who are still trying to improve or, you know, whatever go after, they're going after goals that are big for them. Um, and I coach 25 athletes right now individually. So, you know, my philosophy, uh, which is funny, I hate, I hate that word, even though I majored in <laughs> philosophy is that, um, you know, I coach, I coach the, I coach the individual and I coach the, I coach the person. And because of that, there isn't like an overarching theme to my approach. Like I'm not a high volume coach. I'm not a high intensity coach. Doesn't mean I don't do those things. I'm like, you know, a right volume, right intensity, right approach for the, you know, for, for the person. So it's a very individualized approach. And that's something I take a lot of pride in. Uh, and I takes a lot of time to, to do, uh, and it's not, you know, as someone who is a, a solo venture, it's not scalable, but that's not something that necessarily interests me either. I love the one-on-one -on -one relationship that I have with the 25 athletes that I, that I work with and to be able to, tailor a training program for them that is, you know, taking into account their goals, their history, where they are in life, you know, at this point and, and making it work and making sure, I mean, I think if I had to, to find a theme that runs through it, it would be, you know, my goal when I'm, when I'm working with someone is to make sure that running or their training, I should say their training and racing, running, whatever that is for them, that it, that it, fits well into the constructs of, of their life. Um, and that it's, it's complementing and enhancing everything else that they're doing, not detracting from it. Um, because I've seen that myself as an athlete, uh, where I've gotten 
so wrapped up in in what I'm doing that it's taken away from other important areas of my life and kind of thrown me off balance a bit. Um, so one thing I try to do as a as a coach and with the athletes that I work with is make sure that the program that I'm giving them that you know I'm pushing them appropriately um, and challenging them and pushing them to a level that they didn't think they could get to in such a way that it's not you know, completely overruling their life, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I, I'm with you there. I mean, it's like one person can't, one person might be able to manage 60 miles a week, but one person might be able to manage 30 miles a week. You have Mm -hmm. to customize it for sure. Now I want to ask you this because I think that this might be kind of fun for my listeners. I actually just thought of doing this this morning. You're going to intake me as an athlete. Okay. Mm -hmm. Here's my question. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me give you let me give you my let me give you my background. Okay, um, my marathon PR is three eleven. Mm-hmm. I ran that after my third baby, uh, mm-hmm. twelve months after my third baby. I ran a three thirteen nine months after my first baby. I did not run a marathon between my second and third because I was injured. I had I literally tore my plantar fascia. I did not just Ugh. have plantar fasciitis. It was black and blue and I couldn't bear weight on it for 12 weeks. Uh, that's no bueno. Yeah. Which is actually a good thing for me now because it's like fixed itself. I don't have to worry mm-hmm. about that foot getting plantar fasciitis anymore. Uh, my other foot is still... Uh, it's still up in the air if it could happen. But anyway, so... Um, I have found with each pregnancy, though, that I have had to um, start off a little slower. I mean, after my first baby, I ran a marathon in four months. That was really stupid of me. Um, mm-hmm. My body was not ready for it. I did it anyway. And then I ran another one five months postpartum. And then I, I ran my PR at the time nine months postpartum. So it was like, you know, and I was younger then, right? Mm-hmm. So now... Um, this baby is due August 10th, and I will be 35 um, shortly after. And I would like to obviously better that 311, I don't know, within a year and a half or something like that. So my question to you is, given my history, so I've ran four, 14 or 15 marathons. I, don't, I think 14. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I didn't really train hard until uh these last couple ones i mean when i ran the 13 313 i was running 60 miles a week when i peaked out mm-hmm. um and then when i ran the 311 i actually only pe- i peaked out just above 50 but the majority of the time i was running 40 mile weeks because um i was real paranoid about getting injured and i knew that we probably were going to have another baby. And I was like, I just want to squeak out a little PR and I don't want to get injured. Um, so I think it was really smart for me, you know, to not, to not build my mileage. But that being said, I did it and I entered the race healthy. Everything was great. Um, and I think that, uh, building on a couple seasons, I can pick up my mileage. So I guess the question is, would you, what kind of mileage would you have me building up to? And what kind of key workouts would you have someone like me doing? Someone with four little kids, six and under. <laughs> so, um, that's an interesting question uh, with the limited information that I have to work with. But I mean, here's what I do know. So, training is a is a cumulative thing. Even if you end up taking 
you know, a long chunk of time off for injury or even if it's due to the pregnancy or whatever it is. I mean, all that training you've done in years past, like it doesn't completely erode, which I think is why you were able to run, you know, your best marathon off lower than, you know, lower than usual mileage. Um, and I don't know much about the specific workouts that you were during doing during the time. But I mean, I think the combination of, of those with just your training history to that point and experience having run marathons was, you know, was good enough um, to help you, you know, run a personal best. So knowing like, all right, in the past, you've gone as high as 60, but you've run well, like off of 40. Um, I mean, I would take a very gradual approach toward knowing like, you know, you can you can handle that or you've been able to handle that in the past like building you back up to that similar type of of volume if you've got the time to do so if you know it should if you've shown that you can you know handle it as we build up to it and just you know it take a little while to learn sort of like what your what your sweet spot is and and what i mean by that is finding someone's like you know highest sustainable mileage giving in your case, given the fact that you have four kids, um, you know, you're, you're busy producing like this podcast and just running the household and doing like all of these, these other things. It's like six, maybe 60 is too much at this point of your life now <laughs> that you have like too much. So it's like, you know, who knows, maybe 40 to 50 is like, okay, you can do that. Like you've got the time for it and you can recover well from it. Um, and then just making the best use of that 40 to 50 miles a week, or maybe it's 60, who knows, but whatever it is, like making the best use of that mileage, whatever that sweet spot is, um, and then as we get into the, you know, the specific part of the marathon training, which for me is usually like eight to 10 weeks out from, you know, a goal race, uh, is, you know, doing a lot of, of work at, you know, goal marathon pace or what we hope goal marathon pace to be and seeing like how well you're responding to that and handling it and recovering from it. Um, you know, certainly mixing in some faster workouts, you know, as well. Um, but in general, that's the the approach that I would take. Do you, um, what's the longest marathon pace long run that you generally would prescribe someone in my typical situation? In your typical situation? I mean, it could be, it could be a half marathon that we use as a, you know, as a marathon simulation run and leave it at that. That's a lot. Um, even my better, more experienced, athletes the longest i'll have them do at marathon i say marathon effort um is is 15 or 16 miles and i say effort because when you're doing that in the meat of a marathon cycle when your volume is theoretically high and you're doing all these other workouts and you're just not fresh going into it um marathon pace can feel a lot harder than (laughs) it's going to feel even on on race day so i try to get my athletes to really focus on the, the effort that they're putting out but those athletes who are doing those 15 16 mile uh, pushes at marathon pace, they are, you know, they've been building up to that over the course of two to four years. Um, I wouldn't throw that at, at a newer athlete that I've just started working with or as someone who is relatively new to my style of, of marathon training. But, you know, oftentimes I've had, uh, over the course of a marathon training cycle, like three, four weeks out from, a marathon as a, you know, sort of as a, as a quote unquote big workout, um, is running a half marathon at, what we hope marathon pace to be in, you know, three to four weeks down the road. Yeah. It's 15 to 16 miles. That's a grind for sure. It's a grind. Yeah. It's a hard, hard session. I mean, and you've got to think like, oh, well they got to maintain that for another 10, you know, sort of <laughs> on, on top of it. But that's, um, 
I mean, that's a, that's a big, big workout and we don't do that very often at all. Yeah. I think a lot of people get discouraged because they think, oh my gosh, if I can only run, you know, 12 miles at my goal marathon pace in a long run, how the heck am I going to do it race day? But it, it does work and you can do it. So what would you say to those people who are questioning that kind of, um, thought process? Because you know, you do see people who are say they're training for their first or second marathon mm-hmm. and they think they need to do their long runs. Like, Oh, I'm, I want to break four hours. So like I need to run my runs at nine minute miles. It's like, well, that's not really sustainable then <laughs> to do it that way. So how do you coach people into say, like realizing that slowing down actually works? Yeah, that's a battle I've fought many times with uh, <laughs> with some of my athletes. It's like, well, if that's the pace I want to run, shouldn't I be running it all the time? Well, it's like, well, no, because in that case, you're either either your marathon goal is too soft, yep. or your easy runs are too hard. Um, so we've got to sort of find, you know, we've got to find out what's what's realistic. Um, and I mean, everyone trains a little bit differently too. Like I have, you know, for the most part, it's like almost everyone's easy pace is at least like a minute per mile slower than their goal marathon pace. Some even a little bit slower than that. And oftentimes it just depends on the day. Um, but the first thing I tell a new athlete when I start working with them is, all right, this relationship, like any good relationship is based on trust. So you've just got to trust that when I'm telling you, all right, we're going to slow your easy runs down from eight minutes a mile to nine minutes a mile because your goal marathon pace is eight minutes a mile. Um, you've just got to trust me that that's okay. And it's like, you know, I think a lot of runners, not every runner, but a lot of runners have that, you know, a, a type a type of mentality where they're like, all right, well, when, in, you know, I should be pushing hard all the time. Right. Because that's what training is about. And it's like, well, no, no training is about like pushing hard at the right time uh, and knowing when, you know, knowing when to back off. And, and that's not something that's inherent to a lot of people. You got to learn it over time. Um, and what I have found more often than not is when I get that trust from the athlete and they actually like they'll bite their lip and run a minute per mile slower than I tell them to say they need to for an easy run. Uh, and they learn to kind of get comfortable with that. And then on the hard workouts, like I'm pushing them hard enough where they're like, okay, that was really hard. You know, I really can't run that fast the next day. Um, and then they start to see the results. They're like, okay, this makes sense. Like I, I, I get what you're saying now. Um, but there are a lot of athletes who just, you know, they're kind of in that gray zone all the time. They're, they're not going easy enough on their easy days. They're not going hard enough on their hard days. And they're just kind of like running medium hard all the time. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you can get away with that for a little while. Um, but if you're trying to break through or, you know, get off the plateau, uh, you've got to have a little bit more variation, uh, in your intensities. Yeah. That's like, I feel like that's one of the biggest learning curves when people start taking on like the marathon distance and start wanting to like knock their times down, you know, (laughs) they just don't understand that. And it's so important. So, okay. Tell us about the morning shakeout. You've been doing it three years now, your newsletter that drops on Tuesdays. Did you launch the morning shakeout as a means to have uh, another job or, you know, cause you kind of like, it kind of coincided with when you left competitor a little bit. So what was the purpose behind it? Yeah, I, so I've owned the URL, the morning shakeout for probably four years now. Um, and I'd just been sitting on it for a while and no, I never, 
you know, I never, at least from the beginning, now I do, but I've never had like business ambitions behind it, um, or for ever to be like a job. Um, yeah, so a lot of these things that I, I want to do didn't necessarily fit into competitors' content strategy, and that was that was okay. But I wanted to I wanted to get them out, um, you know, because I, I was just like trying to to scratch that creative itch. So, so you know, I launched the I launched the morning shakeout um, as my you know as my way to do that um, while I was at competitor, and and because running is probably the thing that I'm most interested in. It's mostly about, mostly about running things. Um, but you know, I, I would include other things in there as well that, you know, I've either read or listened to, or, you know, have gotten interested in that, that aren't necessarily directly related to running. So it was really like, it was mine and it was just something that I could, it could be whatever I wanted it to be. I could, um, I could rant about something. I could, you know, share a link to an interesting article that I've read or talk about a product that I've been using um, that I've enjoyed. And, you know, so I launched that in, in 2015. It was really just a, it wasn't a side hustle. There was no, you know, there was no monetization strategy behind it. I wasn't even thinking about that at the time. It was just something that I wanted to get out um, into the world. And, and I, launched it and I haven't, uh, I haven't stopped since I've put it out for 136 straight weeks now. So you like dedicate Mondays to getting that morning shakeout ready and prepared and edited, right? Yeah. I'm working on it all week in terms of, um, reading things and listening to podcasts and taking notes and, and all of that. Like I'm, I'm constantly just like gathering. Um, you know, I, f I feel like I'm like a, you know, like a squirrel herding acorns. Like that's what I'm doing throughout the entire week. And then, uh, and I'm writing little things here and there, um, just commentary on a piece that I've read and, and just taking very rough notes. But on Monday I sit down and I put the whole thing together and Mondays are, I am off limits. Like you cannot <laughs> get a hold of me on Mondays. I don't take phone calls. I don't really work on a lot of other things. Um, my poor wife, like she even knows like Monday, she, like she, <laughs> jo she jokingly says like, okay, like, you know, it's sh like she just knows, like she just, we have dinner together on, on Monday nights and that's probably about the only time we see each other. Cause I'm oftentimes up pretty late, like putting the finishing touches off of it. Um, but I love it. It's my favorite thing that I do every week. Um, and it's just a, you know, it's a source of like, pride and, and joy for me. It sounds kind of dorky saying that. Um, but I think when any person who's ever created something, you know, for themselves and, you know, just puts a lot of, uh, puts a lot of time and effort into it, um, takes pride in that. So that's what the morning shakeout is for me. And you do have, like, you have a sponsor that sponsors the newsletter. Do they do per monthly or what does that look like? Yeah. So now I, now I do have a monthly sponsor. Now it is a, a business and a significant, um, source of my own personal income. And that came about, you know, I had left competitor in 2016 to join a, a coaching startup here in the Bay area. And without getting into the nitty gritty details of it, that sort of fell apart within a few months. And, and I needed to make money. And my wife gave me two options. She's like, you can go get a new job somewhere else, or you've always wanted to work for yourself. Here's your opportunity. So if you've always wanted to hustle, here's your opportunity to hustle. And I was like, okay, how, how can I make this work? And the obvious thing for me was to start, you know, I started coaching a few more athletes. Uh, and then I started thinking about how I wanted to 
spend my time and and I wanted to spend more and more of my time working on the morning shakeout, but I couldn't really justify that mm-hmm. without it bringing in any money because it wasn't a, it wasn't just a side project anymore. Um, if I was going to put that much time into it, it was either, it could be if I decided to go get a new job somewhere and I would just continue doing what I was doing with it. Uh, but I didn't want to do that. I was like, you know what? I'd love for this to be like my thing, like one of my main things and what I put a lot of my time and energy into. So how can I, you know, how can I make this work? And I had had, um, I had a couple of brands reach out, you know, prior to that about, you know, sponsorship or collaboration. And I'd always just sort of push it aside because it wasn't on my, you know, it wasn't on my radar. So I, I started revisiting some of those conversations when that time came up. And, um, that was, let's see, that was like late 2016. And yeah, I've more or less had a monthly sponsor every month since then. That's great. And that, yeah, I mean, and I think that people understand that too. Like you're putting so much time and energy into this. Like it's at some point, these kind of things. And just like, you know, I think about it with my podcast too. Like Mm -hmm. these things aren't side hustles anymore. These are jobs. You're just working for yourself. Yeah. I mean, a lot of work goes into it. And when I see, you know, someone such as your show or, you know, other podcasts or people who are blogging for a living, it looks, uh, you know, it's great. I mean, look, I do it because I, I love it and that's what I want to be spending my time on, but it's a lot of work. Uh, and it's not, it's not easy. And, um, some, you know, some people are in fortuitous enough positions that they can continue to do it like sort of as a hobby. But for me, I'm like, this is, you know, this is what I would like my livelihood to be. And this is something I want to work on. At least I say right now, like forever, like I don't have any plans to, you know, stop. And as long as I can, you know, find, you know, and if, as long as people are enjoying it and and appreciating the, the work that goes into it and, you know, whether it's through my supporters on Patreon or brands that want to support me, what allows me to spend more time on it and produce more work. Um, and that's been, you know, I think that's been one of the most gratifying things about, you know, the last, you know, year plus that I've, I've had sponsors isn't just the fact that I have a sponsor and it's bringing in, you know, income for me, but it's just sort of like validating that, you know, people value this and it's, um, like I'm, I'm very consistent when I send it out, it comes out every Tuesday morning, like right about the same time every week. So there's a, a level of predictability to it. Like I have people write me every week and they're like, it's favorite part of my week. And that just like, everything else aside, like that just, uh, yeah. you know, that is, that is the the best compliment that I could ever get that people are, you know, people are enjoying like what I'm doing or finding value in it, or it's like, you know, it's become an integral part of their week. And that's, you know, that's why I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. People, when people say something like that, it's like, sometimes I feel like I hear a comment like that when I'm at like a low moment or I just read a bad review or, you know, something like that. And then I hear, and then someone says just the right thing at the right time. And I'm like, okay, this does mean something. People are enjoying this. You know, Mm -hmm. this is, this is a good part of someone's week. Okay. So since you like to have opinions on things and that's why you started (laughs) the morning shakeout, um, I want to ask you a fun question about, uh, predictions. Go for it. Okay, so, well, this is going to air after this, but we can still ask because I want to know. And I noticed that you mentioned, touched on it in the morning shakeout this week. Um, Who's your prediction to win Western States this weekend? All right. So we'll start the women's race because I think think there's a lot of intrigue there. I'm going to go with Lucy Bartholomew, who is uh, young. She's 22, but she is experienced. She's been racing ultras for 
I think the last six years or so. Uh, and she has been racing very well recently. Uh, this will be her first hundred miler. I know she's excited for it. Um, but she's a very, you know, mature racer for certainly for her age. Uh, and I think she's, you know, she's young and she's energetic and, and somewhat naive, I think in terms of as experienced as she is, she's a little naive with the, the distance and that can go one of two ways, but I've just got a, I've got a good feeling that it could be a great race for her, but I think it'll be a battle, um, between her and, uh, Courtney DeWalter, who has just been on a tear, um, in longer races recently. Like it just, it's mind blowing how, you know, that with the frequency of which she races at longer distances and just how much she's like dominated them. Um, and that's not to take away from any of the other women in the race. I mean, there's, there's past champions in there. Um, Stephanie Violette and, uh, Casey Licktig. And, you know, I think they can certainly be in the mix as well if training has gone well for them. But if I had to pick one, I'd go with, I'm going to go with Lucy over Courtney DeWalter in the women's race. Uh, and in the men's race, Oh man. Um, you know, I know Jim Walmsley gets a lot of attention and, and rightfully so he's exciting to watch and he's had some pretty epic days at Western the last couple of years and epic, not necessarily because he, I mean, he hasn't won yet, but you know, the way that he raced there a couple of years ago when he just went out like a bat out of hell and, uh, you know, ended up getting turned around at mile 90 something or whatever, and, you know, still finished and, and kind of walked it in. Um, it's a legendary story. And then, you know, last year he kind of did the same thing and it just didn't work out well for him. I think if Jim, you know, Jim's hands down the best runner in the field, um, but he's not the best racer in the field, or at least he hasn't shown that he's the best racer in the field. So I think if he can, you know, I think if he can run a, an intelligent race, that doesn't mean necessarily a cautious race, but an intelligent race where he can, you know, spread himself out evenly over the entire hundred miles and not blow it in the first three quarters, uh, in the first like 75 or 80, there's no reason he shouldn't win, but he's up against some, you know, some good talent. I think, uh, one of his, uh, Coconino cowboy, I guess, I guess you could call him a teammate, uh, or buddies, uh, Tim Frericks, uh, it's his first hundred miler. Um, and, you know, newbies have historically like had some success at Western State. So it could be one of those things where, you know, Tim's also a great Tim's a great racer. I mean, he won North Face 50 last year, pretty dominating performance, first hundred mile that could go any number of ways. But I mean, I think if if Jim bites off a little more than he can chew and Tim is really patient, I think Tim Ferricks could win. But if I had to pick one, uh, I'm going to. You know, I'm going to say that I'm going to say that Jim learns from his past mistakes and runs a smart race and uh, ends up getting the W. OK, so Jim and um, Lucy, Bartholomew. Lucy, Lucy. Yeah. OK, Jim and Lucy. Sadly, this won't be out till after the race, but it'll be interesting to listen back and then look up and see who won. That's the first time I've I've put any of my predictions out there, and uh -oh. so it'll uh, yeah it'll be interesting to see the uh, yeah the the feedback after the fact. I so. have another good prediction, but it's going to be a long time before uh, this race happens. But I still want to hear what you think. Um, okay. And you have to give an answer. Okay. Who are going to be our three women and three men marathoners oh. this year at that make the team at the Olympic trials? So in twenty twenty, you mean twenty twenty. All right. I, I hate making predictions. Um, <laughs> I know. Who knows that somebody could get injured? Like, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, I hate making predictions because, I mean, there's still a lot of time before the trials. Um, 
And there's some unknowns as well. Like, I is, know. Is Shalane going to retire or is she going to come back? Because if she comes back, you've got to include her in the conversation. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and if she does, I mean, I think it's it's not totally unrealistic that she, Gwen Jorgensen and Ooh, Gwen. Uh, and yeah. Amy Craig all, all make the team. But, you know, I just and I have no inside intel on this. I I have a suspicion that Shalane might be winding things down um, and is more interested in maybe helping those other women get there than doing it herself. But I mean, who knows? But if she's in the race, I mean, she is one of the fiercest competitors this country has ever seen. And if she's in the race, she's there to make the team. And, and I wouldn't count her out in that spot. Uh, but if I had to pick three, um, man, that's a tough one, especially given Kellen Taylor's recent run at grandma's because they got a good thing going in flagstaff too with northern arizona elite um you know kellen just had a big breakthrough number seven all time u.s um steph bruce is you know she's a solid marathoner and and i know she hasn't been completely thrilled with her last couple um but i think training with you know with kellen and alphine tuliamuk who you know is another one who hasn't just like i don't think she has shown her potential in the marathon yet but she has completely just you know burn up the roads this year and last year and has shown like she can you know she can beat some some very good women um and then you could molly huddle in there man this is tough you're making this hard on me um i mean i feel like jordan has <laughs> is the shoe in yeah and then and, and then i haven't even gotten to jordan has yet and she's been really you know she's been really impressive i don't know that there are any shoe ins um that's true and I'm I'm dodging I'm totally dodging your question here. But if I have to <laughs> if I have to pick three, well, Des um, Des says she's running too. Don't and then I and her. then I haven't yeah, and I haven't even got to Des yet. Um, because you know if De Des is another one, like if she's in the race, you can't <laughs> you know you can't count her out. Um, and even given that, I mean, what's exciting is especially in the women's race is there's so much more depth than there was it's even crazy. in 2016. Um, and some of the same characters, but some very um you know, some very like formidable new ones as well. Like Molly, you got Molly Huddle in there. You got Kellen. So, all right, if I'm going to, if I got to pick three right now, cause you're not going to let me off the hook. Otherwise, um, I go with Molly Huddle. Okay. Uh, and this is in no particular order. Sure. I, I go with Molly Huddle, um, Amy Craig and give me a dark horse. <laughs> I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Alephine Tuliamuk. See, I don't uh, know who that is. Yeah, I just had her on my podcast probably three or four episodes ago, um, and she runs with she she runs with uh, Northern Arizona Elite. So she and Kellen and Steph Rothstein are going to be training partners. Um, and Alphine is a, I think she became a U.S. citizen in 2016, um, and she doesn't have a ton of marathon experience. She ran, you know, I think 233 is her best, and she was right behind Steph Bruce uh, at New York last fall or maybe the year before that. Um, and she hasn't run a marathon in a while, but she has like, like not lost on the roads, uh, at least to an American woman in anything shorter than a half marathon, uh, in a couple of years. I mean, she just won the U S half marathon title. She ran, won the U S 25 K title. I mean, she beat Sarah Hall who just ran a 226 over in Europe somewhere a couple of weeks ago. Um, so it's like, she's got the talent, but she hasn't quite proven herself in the marathon yet so that's my that's my dark horse um so i'll go with those three okay amy then, amy molly and alafino and alafine yeah those those would be my three okay. uh in in the women's race and then oh man on the men's side same sort of deal uh you know galen rupp um minus 
dropping out of Boston this year. I mean, he certainly rebounded from that with a 206 in Prague, and he's won Chicago, and he's going back there. Um, you know, and he's the defending trials champion. I, I think you've got to have, you know, you've got to have him in there. Um, you know, I, Meb's kind of the same thing. Like I've always said, if Meb's in the race, you can't count him out, but he's obviously retired now. So I can finally count <laughs> Meb out. Um, you know, just, just given the fact that he's not a professional runner anymore, but uh-huh. if he were still, if he were still competing, even though he'd be like 45 <laughs> or whatever at the time, like, you know, it's another one of those guys, like if he's on the starting line, you've got to consider him. But, um, let's see, we'll go with Galen. Um, Hmm. Who else? Um, man, I mean, I, I really like what Ben Rosario is doing with the Hogan Nazalite crew. Um, and he's got, you know, he's got some guys on his team who, you know, Matt Yano has run a really sh- solid marathon. Um, but then he's got like, you know, Scott Fobble, who's only run one and Scott ran a 212 in his debut. Uh, and has also just been like doing really well on the road. So I'm going to I'm going to throw Scott Fobble in there as a dark horse um, along with Galen. And then, you know, the last one. Man, uh, I mean, Jared Ward made the team mm, in 2016. Yeah. Can't count him out. Um, I mean, and to, just to go on the right, it's way too early to tell. So I'm gonna change. I'm gonna change these predictions probably like ten times between now and, and the actual trials. In we can re- we can redo it. We, yeah. we we should redo it like a month before. We should do like a prediction thing a month before. Yeah, that would be fun. And it's hard to say, like, who who may move up to the marathon here um, in the next year and a half. Some, you know, oftentimes there's, you know, there's some faster guys who have, like, qualified with a half, you know, who have never run a marathon. And, again, that could go either way. Um, but if I had to pick a third, since I've gone with Scott Fobble, Galen Rupp, and, um, you know, I don't know if he's going to run the marathon. Um, but if he does, I like his chances is Sam Chalanga. Okay. Um, he he's another one who is just he's run like an hour, a little over an hour for half marathon. Uh, he's done, you know, he's done pretty special things at five k, ten k, twenty k type distances. Um, and I don't really know what his situation is right now, or if he's going to run a marathon this fall. And he hasn't really knocked one out of the park yet. I don't even know if he's done one yet. But um, he's another one of those guys who's just a great racer and he has good range. And I think if he's in there, uh, he, you know, he just has the tools to compete. So that's my my very, very early uh, Olympic <laughs> trial prediction. I'll go with Sam Chalangus, Scott Fobble and Galen Rupp on the men's side. Okay, I'm going to keep these in the show notes so we can look back on them. And then like a couple months before we'll do a re- a rethink, a re-guess. I did a, I did a Boston uh, prediction, like who was going to win for the women's field and I, or who was going to be the top American. And I predicted Jordan and then, you know, what happened with Jordan. So mm-hmm. um, their predictions are always interesting to do because you don't know what's going to happen or if someone's going to get injured a day before or whatever. Yeah. I, I, I hate making predictions. They're fun, but I, fun, I mean, yeah. I, yeah, I, I really, it, causes me more stress than it should I think it's fun because then you kind of have okay who I predicted then you can kind of like root for them or get behind them and I was predicting the top American women but like obviously I was cheering for all of them right we're gonna do the end of the podcast questions we can move through them pretty quick and then we'll stay on for like um three or four questions for Patreon so um what is one thing professionally or personally that you have not done yet that you would like to do 
I would love to go to Kenya for a couple weeks to maybe a month and just hang out uh, with uh, with a lot of the runners in uh, in the Rift Valley and in E10 and Eldoret and kind of surrounding areas and like just see what life is like at one of the training camps like Elliot Kipchoge's training camp or you know just experience the you know the entirety of the culture not just the running culture but just like what what life is like in Kenya so I hope to one day have that have that opportunity but have not done that yet do you think your wife would want to go with you it's a great question <laughs> uh you know she would probably uh she could probably stand it for a short period of time um but if I wanted to go for like a couple of weeks to a month just to be like the running nerd that I that I am she'd probably send me on my own <laughs> <laughs> or she'd come for a week and be like peace yeah she yeah home. she'd probably come for a couple of days and yeah and then peace out so what is an accomplishment you're most proud of? You know, graduating college um, was the first first male uh, on my, you know, on the Frioli side of my family, my dad's side of the family, um, ever to graduate college. Um, and that was a, you know, that was a big deal. Like, to me, it didn't seem like a huge deal. I'm like, oh, yeah, you graduate high school, you go to college, you go for four years, you graduate, you move on. Um, like, it just you know, kind of made sense to me, but my dad never graduated college. He, uh, he immigrated here from Italy when he was 12 and went to trade school and, um, you know, had the opportunity to go and, and didn't take advantage of the opportunity. Um, and my, you know, my grandmother still gives him a hard time about that. And, um, you know, it was kind of a sore spot with my grandfather when he was still alive. So it was, uh, you know, it was, it, it's my proudest accomplishment because it was such a proud moment for my family. Um, and to see like my, my dad is not an emotional guy. I've seen him cry less than five times in my entire life. And one of those days was when I graduated from college. Uh, and I think it was, you know, it was important to me, but it was like really important to, you know, to him to see that. And I know like my, you know, my grandfather had passed away, but my grandmother was really, really proud of that. And, um, you know, I think for those reasons, it's one of my proudest accomplishments as well. That's awesome. I didn't expect that answer at all. I love that. What's one message you'd like to send to the world? Uh, the PG version of that is don't be a jerk. Um, <laughs> I have have another word that I would use, but I won't I won't put it <laughs> up on, this, on this podcast. Um, but yeah, just be nice to your fellow people. Um, there's no reason to, you know, to be an a hole. Um, you know, so just yeah, don't be a don't be a jerk. Treat people well. Uh, treat people how you want to be treated. Um, and I think if we were able to do that, we'd all be better off. Totally. What's uh oh? Who's someone fun you'd like to have coffee or a cocktail with? I would love to have Kenyan tea with Elliot Kipchoge when I go Ooh. on my trip, when I go on my trip to Kenya. Yeah. For two to four weeks, um, preferably every day. Um, but no, I would love to just yeah, I'd love to sit down with. Elliot Kipchoge, he's kind of my my pie in the sky podcast guest, like my my north star, so to speak. Um, but I would, he's just someone I'd love to, even if it weren't for the podcast, just have a conversation with um, and be able to to ask him questions over uh, over a cup of tea. I'm sure you could make that happen. Does he speak English well? He speaks very good English. Yeah, um, he's very um, very intelligent, and very you know very articulate, but he's also um, very hard to pin down. <laughs> I bet. Well, I, I foresee if anybody can make it happen, you can. I'm trying. <laughs> um, what's the best, most recent book you've read? So I just uh, just wrapped up a book called Do No Harm by Henry Marsh, who is a 
British neurosurgeon. Um, and I was, uh, I was sent, actually sent this book by one of my athletes who was a doctor. And she's like, I think you'd, she's like, I think you'd really enjoy this book. So I'm going to send it to you. Um, and I started reading it and it was, I mean, it was just like fascinating on a number of different levels, but essentially it's about like, what is it like to be a brain surgeon? Um, what is it like to like open up someone's skull and literally have their life in your hands? Oh my Um, gosh. It's just, and, and there are some gory details in there. There, there were some parts. Where I was like, I got to put this down. It's, it's like too intense. Um, but it was just like he is such a, I mean, he's a neurosurgeon by, you know, by trade. But he's also just a very good writer, and he can send, uh, he can spin just like pretty amazing stories. So he writes about like what it's like to be a brain surgeon, and and there are some of those like gory details. But a lot of it's just like what he was processing emotionally, like the impact that his profession had on his personal relationships and, and all of that. And, um, I really, I just finished that up and I really enjoyed it. I just can't imagine going to bed at night thinking I'm going to operate on someone's brain in the morning. And like, how am I going to sleep tonight knowing that that is in my hands? Yeah. And I mean, to, to read him describing the, like some of these surgeries and like, I mean, you or I would never attempt in for, for him. It's like, Oh yeah, this is, this is not a big deal, but this one is like, um, like type of thing. And it's like, uh, yeah, you're, you're thinking about things on a completely different level than I am right now. Oh man. I just like, that's just, you were born to do something like that. That's for sure. Not you, but like, (laughs) yeah, no, I certainly, I certainly was not. (laughs) My husband oftentimes says, I think I could be a surgeon. I think I could do it. And I'm like, I guess I look at him and I think, I do kind of think you have the kind of brain and the kind of uh, confidence in yourself and, and your skills that if, if you were passionate about it, I do think that you have the, the kind of nature that someone who has that job, you could do it. Me? No. No way. Yeah. Me neither. Okay. So thank you, Mario, so much for coming on and sharing about your work and your running and your coaching and... Um, Tell everybody where to find you, The Morning Shakeout, how to subscribe to your newsletter, all that good stuff. Well, thank you first so much for having me. I had fun uh, chatting with you here today. And for anyone who wants to follow me, I'm pretty easy to find. TheMorningShakeout.com is where my newsletter lives. You can subscribe there. I um, I pull pieces out of it every week um, and republish to the website so you can sample some of my writing there. And there's links to podcasts and interviews and everything else that I've done. Um, and then just on social, I'm, I'm at my name. It's Mario Fraioli. That's F-R-A-I-O-L-I. Awesome. All right. Mario is going to hang on for some bonus questions for Patreon listeners. So thanks for listening, everybody. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Thank you, Mario, for coming on the show. You guys make sure you subscribe to his newsletter, The Morning Shakeout, and check out his podcast, The Morning Shakeout. Links to that will be in my show notes, lindsayhine.com. Big thanks to Four Sigmatic for supporting the show. Head over to foursigmatic.com slash another and use the promo code another to get 15% off your order. If you've enjoyed what you heard today, I would love it and appreciate it if you would share it with your friends, family, social media followers, whoever it is that you think might be interested in this conversation. You guys have a great Friday. Have a wonderful weekend. Have an awesome 4th of July too. And as always, I will see you next Friday.